Uh, at this time, our kids are going to be released for Children's Church, so they'll head out that way. All that good stuff that Bridget talked about at the beginning, Children's Church, nursery, crime room, any of that that you uh, need or want to take advantage of, uh, you're, you're welcome to do so. So they're headed out that way. Banner was digging the worship this morning. I thought he was really into it. And then at one point, he just kind of stopped and sighed and said, I'm ready for Children's Church. So... <laughs> So he got the best of both worlds. He was digging the worship. Then he's like, all right, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> uh, so they enjoy it over there, and they have, they have a good time. Uh, that video is, is basically uh, it's a good recap of where we've been the last couple of weeks. I won't do much more recap than that other than, than to say we've, we've been talking about water and, and tracing this kind of uh, narrative of water through Scripture uh, and, and how it flows into the, the waters of, of baptism if you will, in the New Testament. And so we've kind of taken some broad uh, scopes and, and looks at things the last couple of weeks. Today we're going to really narrow down on one specific story in Jesus' ministry in John. And so we're going to be in John 4 in just a minute. Uh, if you want to turn there now or in just a few minutes, uh, you can. But that's where we're going to be this, this morning. Uh, have you ever had a conversation about some thing, like a, a tangible thing, and, and you were talking about this thing, but the conversation wasn't really about this thing, <laughs> that this thing was just kind of a, a placeholder for something else, or it, it represented something else in the relationship, or maybe unresolved tension, or something that you've been holding on to, and so you're having a conversation about this, but really the conversation is about, is about that. I, I think I've told this story before, but one of the earliest memories I have of this in, in our marriage, because I think this often happens in, in arguments that we do this type of thing. Uh, I, I vividly remember, may I, like, I may have told this before, but I vividly remember Ashley and I shopping together in Walmart, which is always fun for newlywed couples. You're trying to figure out what types of foods do we buy now together. And so we're, we're going through looking at different types of food. We get to the milk, and Ashley drinks skim milk, and I drink 2%. And so I was just like, we'll just get both. Like, right, it's just the two of us in the house. We can, we can afford two kinds of milk. <laughs> well, she's like, no, we, we'll, we'll meet in the middle. We'll get 1%. I'm, I'm not drinking 1% milk. Like, that's, <laughs> I'm not a crazy person. Um, so she's like, no, we can just get one. Like, we don't need to have two kinds of milk. And so I was like, no, we just get skim and 2%. And so finally, she just like, her tone changed completely. And she's like, Warren, at some point, you're going to have to compromise on something. And so I realized, I said, okay, I, I said, let's stop because we're not, I don't think we're talking about milk anymore, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I was smart enough early in marriage to, to realize that. Like, the conversation was about this, but it wasn't really about this. It was about, it was about that. Um, I always like to end that story by saying we drink 2% milk now, so. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't decided if that reflects positively or negatively on me, <laughs> but we drink 2% milk. <laughs> uh, so this story in John 4 is a story about water and water jars and thirst, uh, but I don't think it's really about that. Uh, it's really about something else. It's about some other stuff that's going on. Those elements are just the vehicles that drive this, this narrative that Jesus is trying to get across to this woman that he meets, and I think then in turn to each of us. 
And so a couple of, of notes about the narrative of this story itself, and then we're going to jump into it. We're going to read uh, this whole long story this morning in just a minute. So I want to make a couple of comments before we start, and then I'll make more comments after we read it. Uh, but this is a story that, that you may be very familiar with, you may recognize, and it's a story that I think a lot of times when, when we discuss it or study it, we focus on, on Jesus' words on worship towards the end of the story, which is where Jesus talks about uh, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, and so there's a lot that's been said and discussed and, and bantered about about what he means there, and, and so there's been a lot of stuff taken about worship from this story. And so a lot of our focus, I think, on this story tends to be uh, on, on Jesus' words and kind of what he comes to about worship. And I think connected with that then, uh, the woman in this story really gets a bad rap. Uh, and, and I think there are some reasons for that that I'll get to in a minute. But, but just to give you an example, uh, there's a, a somewhat well-known sermon about this woman where a, a well-known pastor described her as a worldly, sensually-minded, unspiritual harlot. Uh, now, none of that is in the story, <laughs> Um, and I'll refrain from, from exposing this guy's name because, admittedly, his, this sermon was, was many, many years ago, um, and, and he's preached on her since in, in more kind of not-so-negative ways, uh, but this sermon is readily available on the Internet on his website still, so I feel like it's still fair to bring up. Uh, this is the portrait that I feel like kind of gets painted of this, this woman, that she is this overtly sinful woman uh, who comes into contact with Jesus, and she's completely sort of redeemed. And I think part of the reason that, that, that we do that, uh, that, that we think of her, again, as this sermon said, as a, a hopelessly carnal woman, is that it really plays up this redemptive narrative in the story. Uh, that if we, can, if we can start this woman from, from this really, really low place of, of just sin and, and, and deprivation, then it, it, it plays up even more what happens to her in this encounter with Jesus. Um, but none of that is actually in the story. It may be true. We're just filling in gaps from, from her story. Uh, so we're going to try to maybe look at, at her story from a little bit of a different angle this morning uh, and come at this story again. Instead of looking at Jesus' words about worship there towards the end, to look at this encounter with Jesus and this woman and think about what are they, what are they really getting at as they discuss this, as they discuss water and water jars and thirst and well. Um, and what are they actually, what is Jesus actually trying to get her to see, and what is he trying to get us to see? Uh, so with that, we're going to jump into it. John chapter 4, uh, we're going to pick up in verse 1. You'll see on the screen it says through 42. We're actually going to stop it at verse 30. We won't go all the way through. And just to give you a heads up, towards the end of this, we're going to skip uh, really just one verse near the end of, of verse 27, because we're not even going to get into all of Jesus' interaction with the disciples here, because we're really just focused on on, on the woman's interaction with Jesus. If you want to get into the, any of the other parts or talk about anything that we don't discuss, you're welcome to come to our class uh, in the fellowship hall afterwards where we'll kick whatever around of this that you want. So John 4, picking up in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, 
sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Uh, John adds that in, in, in kind of what we have as quotation marks. But I think it's important to note that even like, Jewish men weren't even supposed to talk to their wife in public. Like you did that when you got home. Uh, women's place in society was not great. We can just say that. Um, and so the idea that he would be talking to not only a, a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman in public with the two of them by themselves is, is so entirely scandalous. And we just kind of read over it as we read the story. Uh, so keep going. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I'm going to pause here one more time. Because I think, again, sometimes in, in the characterization of this woman is this kind of sinful, worldly, uh, carnal woman chasing the pleasures of life through five husbands. Uh, we begin to see this woman as kind of unspiritual and just devoid of, of a spiritual nature. Uh, she's pretty plugged in to spiritual and religious things. She knows about her history, about their shared history between Samaritans and Jews. And she is searching for something. And she says, I know that a time is coming when all this will be answered. Uh, this is someone who seems to be looking for something. Uh, then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, I am he. Then, skipping down to verse 28, 
Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Uh, that's where we're going to stop this morning. We find out later that, that the people of the town do come to believe. They come to believe of their, uh, as they say later, based not on just on her words, but of their own belief and, and experiences with Jesus. He stays with them a couple of days and ends up being this great experience for, for the whole town, it seems. Uh, and so as I said at the beginning, this is a story about metaphorical waters more than it is simply a story about literal waters and the well and water jars. And the way that I read the story, at least, uh, I think she begins to put some of that together right around verse 15. I uh, obviously don't know this for sure, but I think you can, you can hear it in, in her voice right around verse 15 when she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Uh, again, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I think this is sort of her way of acknowledging we're not really talking about water anymore, are we? <laughs> seems, like you've got, seems like you've got something else in mind. And so let's think about this woman uh, for a minute, because one of the things that I've, that I've kind of really been thinking about this week and started to think about more uh, than in typical times that I've read or gone through the story is this question of, uh, how does a, a woman in Jesus' day end up being married five times? Uh, again, because when I've heard the story presented over the course of my life, I think there's typically this kind of stated or unstated narrative that she's just kind of running around from man to man looking for, for something that she can't ever find with any of the men she's with, and so she just goes from man to man to man to man to man. Uh, but again, women didn't really have a lot of rights in this time. Uh, divorce was almost always initiated by the man. Women didn't just have the opportunity to say, I want a divorce and, and leave. Divorce was largely the, the man's right. Even if you read through the New Testament, divorce is almost always talked about in context of a man leaving his wife. That's how divorce happened. Uh, so even if she's been divorced five times, probably wasn't of her own volition. Uh, it could be that this woman is unable to have kids, and, and she's been left repeatedly by men uh, because she hasn't been able to give them what they are, are looking for. And so it could be that you've got this woman who is, is, feels hopelessly rejected, and worthless, and is dealing with all kinds of internal insecurities. Uh, it could be that she was married off as a, as a young teenager to a much older man, as was often the case in, in this culture. So maybe her first husband died, and she's been married off then to other family members, and that guy's brothers would probably be older as well. Maybe they've died. Now she's got multiple dead husbands. And she's dealing with not only emotional insecurities, but, but physical, literal insecurities. Maybe she's grieving, she's wounded, she's hurt. Uh, there are a lot of paths that could have led her to this point of being married five times. But regardless of what has brought her to this point, we find her now coming to this well by herself with the jar she's about to fill up with water and head back to town. But I think that each time she fills up this jar with water and heads back to town, she does so 
carrying more than just water. Uh, she's probably carrying some type of pain, regret, grief, wounds, guilt, shame. She's got some burdens. Uh, I don't want to make too many assumptions about her backstory, but I'm going to assume that you don't go through five marriages without some pain and burden and heartache and difficulty, and that you carry those things with you. Uh, so much has been made in, in typical, typical conversations about this woman, about the fact that she comes to this well alone in the middle of the day. And, and people usually connect it to her backstory, which I don't think is, is, is probably inaccurate. I think those things very well may be connected. Uh, but again, oftentimes the characterization is, is that this quote-unquote sinful woman has been excluded from community by others because of her sinful lifestyle. And so I have one actual commentator that, that stated this. Uh, we can imagine how the people of her locality avoided her because of her lack of feminine modesty and purity. <laughs> um, like, that's a thing that someone actually wrote in a scholarly resource that I have. Um, but I think we can also imagine that someone who's been through five marriages may not want to walk to the well with a bunch of married women from town, right? Maybe this is her chance just to be alone, to get away from all of that. Uh, women typically would have gone to the well together in the morning before it got hot, before everything else in the day got started, but she's coming alone at noon. Um, maybe because others have excluded her, maybe because she just wants time to get away. And I've got to think that each day then, she fills up that jar and she walks back to town with a heavy burden. Regardless of the circumstances, again, that led to her five marriages, she has probably come through that as a wounded person. Those wounds may very well have been self-inflicted or they may have been inflicted by others or some combination of the two. Uh, but, as I said, I don't think you go through that whole experience without some type of wounds and burdens. And so in those circumstances, whenever we go through something like that that leaves us burdened uh, or in pain or with scars or with wounds, I think we tend then to start carrying water jars with us. We carry around water jars that are full of things that we, we tell ourselves will quench our thirst, will heal our wounds, will take away our burdens, that will relieve us in some way. And I'm guessing that, that most of us have found a way to carry some type of water jar around with us. We may not even realize that it's there, uh, but we keep filling it up. It's just become kind of a part of who we are. So maybe your jar is, is full of anger that you hope will satisfy some thirst for, for justice or retribution. Or maybe it's, it's full of pride that you hope will, will satisfy some thirst for, for worth or value. Maybe it's full of guilt that you hope will satisfy your thirst for, for overcoming your past. Maybe it's full of self-righteousness that you hope will satisfy your thirst for, for being right or needed to obtain some type of, of moral or doctrinal purity. But each time we go to the well to fill up our jars of wants and needs and insecurities with more anger or pride or guilt or self-righteousness, our jar just gets heavier and heavier. And we trudge back to town with this burden and we're still thirsty. Um, 
I think it's a little unfair to this woman to describe her as sinful in the way that we typically think of sinful. Uh, All of us are sinful, so we certainly could do that. Uh, But I think it does, it fits in the narrative more fully to say that this is a woman who is thirsty, probably like many of us. And so then, when Jesus brings up her marriages, I think he exposes the water jar that she's been trying to fill up. And so when she says, hey, look, guy, um, I'll I'll take whatever you've got that will help me not be thirsty anymore. If you've got something that will help me not have to fill up this water jar, I'll take it. Just bring it on. And so then when she says that, Jesus reaches for the hurt, for the burden, for the wound. He brings up her water jar not as a means of belittling her, but as a way to begin to show her the depths to which his healing will extend within her soul. To say, this living water that that I am offering you, it will reach even down to that. Uh, It's it's been said, or, or you may know about water, that, you know, water will work its way to the lowest point of a crevice, cavern, space, And so, too, the living water of Jesus works its way down into those hidden crevices of our heart, of our soul, of our being, that we may have trouble fully exposing, that we may have trouble fully recognizing or owning up to in our own lives. And Jesus says, my my living water reaches down even to there. So go and, and bring that even to me. Go get your husband. Bring him back. So you have this woman And she keeps coming to the well with her water jar in tow because she's thirsty. But she doesn't want to be thirsty anymore. And so after revealing that he is the Messiah, that he's the remedy for repeated and endless trips to this bottomless well. Did you hear us say, we come to this well, it's very deep. Uh, This is a deep well. It's a bottomless well. She keeps filling up her jar from. So he, he, he reveals that he is the remedy for, for all of this. And this then is how she responds in verse 28. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Then they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Uh, Jesus invites us to leave our jars at the well of false promises and to run back to town, back to community, back to renewed purpose, back to redemption, to new life, to this wellspring of eternal life that is offered to us in Christ. And as a way of of confessing our need for such water, he asks us to name those things that are our deepest wounds that won't seem to heal, that are our deepest struggles that we can't seem to move away from, that are the heaviest burdens that it just feels like no matter how many times we try to knock them off, they keep coming back. They weigh us down more and more with each passing day. He asks us to name our water jars. Uh, What is it that we are carrying that is just getting heavier and heavier that we keep having to fill up? He then invites us not back to the well to keep filling up our jar with temporary fixes, 
But instead, he invites us to lay down our jar at the cross where we have the hope and the promise of this living water that will flow through us and, and mean that we don't have to keep filling up that jar anymore. Where we will find living water that heals, that strengthens, and that relieves in a way that nothing else can. And this, I think, then, is, is the beauty of the picture of the waters of baptism. Uh, I think one of the, the images that has helped me in my understanding and thinking of baptism is that baptism is the beginning of something new in a person. It is the, 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 the kind of the wellspring of eternal life, as Jesus says, that, that marks the, the beginning of something new within a person, not the, the end of some formulaic process of, of salvation or, or steps of salvation or things like that. It's not some step in the process, but it, it's this beginning of a new walk and journey and life in Christ, a life in which we are clothed in Christ, not clothed in our burdens or our insecurities or the things that are holding us back. But Paul says, in, in the waters of baptism, we put on Christ. We are clothed now in this wellspring of life and in living waters. We're covered in this, this water that births us into the story of Christ, and we become a new creation in Christ. And, and I think around the communion table each Sunday, we get this reminder of this, this reminder of, of Jesus who invites us to lay all of that down and come into relationship with him, to come into community and relationship with each other, and share in this life-giving water that he offers. That at the table of communion, we're reminded of this invitation to lay down our water jars and take our place next to our Savior who hosts and who welcomes and who forgives us at the table of mercy. And so now we are going to share in this communion meal together, to share in this reminder of, of what has been offered to us through Jesus. Uh, and, and we're going to sing a song proclaiming our, our desire uh, to lay down whatever it is we have at the cross. And so as we sing this, may we be thinking about those things. What water jar? Come broken hearted, let the rescue begin. Come find your mercy, oh sinner, come near. Earth has no sorrow and heaven. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. Oh, 
pray our prayer of confession together, and then we'll uh, share in communion. So I'll pray the parts in top on white, and together we'll pray the parts in yellow. Father, we confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest path paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable, or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. You may be seated.